0: bring in the word this morning. I do have to touch on a couple things before uh, I get started, so please bear with me. Uh, Number one, uh, marriage retreat. Uh, We will be having one in October 13th to the 15th. If you are interested, please let us know and sign up uh, at the table back there or online. So please do that. And uh, so that's the first thing. (laughs) Uh. Soon, as soon as you can, you know. Uh, we know you guys. We know how you work, so please um, don't wait until the last minute. It's super helpful when you don't. <laughs> Number two, um, for those of you that aren't usually here, you know that I wasn't here the last couple of weeks. Some of you may not have noticed, and that's okay. Um, but thankfully, I was in Colombia. I was able to spend two Sundays in Colombia visiting some of our sister churches uh, that are part of Grace Partnership. I uh, was in Two cities in uh, Rio Hacha, which is a small city to the uh, north of Colombia uh, near the desert, and it was actually so much fun. That's where Eduardo uh, Pastors, he was with us a few months ago. You may remember him, and then I went to Bogota, and I was there a few a few days, and I was able to spend time with, with actually quite a few pastors that are part of Grace Partnership. And let me tell you guys what a blessing it is to be part of a partnership of churches that are working together for the sake of the gospel. The Lord uh, is moving not only locally, we are seeing fruit of the gospel here in this church. I, I love seeing it Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday after Wednesday, and then through the week, how the Lord is moving here in our church and here in Titusville but he's also moving elsewhere, and it was just so encouraging for me to be able to go and see the faces of people that we pray for week after week. They send their greetings, and I really hope that uh, you guys would have the opportunity to go and meet them. I also hope that we will have the opportunity of bringing a couple of them here to share with us because it's just so amazing to see what the Lord is doing over there. So thank you for those of you that were praying. Really appreciate it. One of the things that I loved uh, about being in Colombia was that towards the end, I was really like, I want to get home. I loved it. I enjoyed it. But I was like, I need to be home. I want to be with my family and I want to be with my local church. I missed you guys so much. And so it is good to be back home worshiping with you guys. One last thing before we jump into the service, Uh, as you can tell, from my faith and my exotic accent. I am, you know, originally from Guatemala. I was born and raised in Guatemala. And when I preach, my parents actually watch online. And today is actually a very special day. Today's my dad's birthday. And so if you give me guys a second, I'm going to just say happy birthday to my dad, okay? Papi, te amo. Feliz cumpleaños. Te amo con todo mi corazón. Y Dios te bendiga. And so... I have a great dad, guys, and so I just wanted to take a moment to do that. With that said, uh, let us jump into the message this morning. This morning, we're actually reading one of those passages that we're all so familiar with. Today, we're talking about... David and Goliath. It's probably the most popular story that comes from the Bible that is known in our culture. Uh, whenever you know you hear David and Goliath, when it comes to, to sports, when it comes to different settings, and so the world knows the story of David and Goliath. We know the story and Goliath, but you know what? Sometimes we are blinded by the things that we're familiar with, and so uh, you know, I know that you've heard the story. A million times. You have probably heard it taught the wrong way. Maybe you've heard it taught the right way. If you've been uh, in reform circles for long enough, you've probably heard the whole you're not David kind of thing, which is true. Uh, but the reality is that you already know exactly what happens in this story. And so you may be tempted to check out and check that box of like, I already know this one. Let's move on. I want to ask you this morning, I want to plead with you. Would you please lean in to the Word of God this morning? What we are reading from is not something I came up with. It's the Word of God that is life and life-giving, and I trust that the Lord has a word for us this morning. So would you pray with me that the Lord would give us fresh eyes, that we would be able to receive from His Word today what He has for us as a local church. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, thankful for your word, thankful that you have provided for us, Lord, fresh revelation, Father, that you spoke your words and that you gave this to your people, that we would be guided by it day after day. Lord, I pray that as we look at this passage, that you would give us discernment, that your spirit, Lord, would help us see what you have for us today, Lord. I do pray for my brothers and sisters that are listening to this message, Father, that you would always give us as a church the sermon, Father, that we would know when the Word of God is being rightly handled. Lord, I pray that if there is anything that I say that comes out of my own wisdom, Father, anything that I made up, Lord, I just pray that that would fall down and be forgotten. Lord, help us be people of the book, people that love your Word, and people that recognize it uh, when it is being preached uh, according to it, Lord. And so I thank you so much for your Word this morning. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. 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 So uh, we're going to read. We're going to start by reading uh, the passage. I'm not going to read it all. Um, You might be surprised to know that there's actually 58 verses in this story. It's a a story that we can summarize so quickly, but it's pretty lengthy uh, as it's detailed in first Samuel 17. Uh, But I want to start by reading the first 11 verses. And here I want you to notice as you read the story, I want you to think of what Josiah said a moment ago. We live in a broken world, and we have a real enemy. So would you read with me uh, verses 11 through, I mean 1 through 11. It says this, it says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Ezekah and Eves-Damim. I don't know how to say it, but you don't either, so that's okay. <laughs> and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of, um, of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the side and the Lord stood on the sorry and Israel, I am so sorry. Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was 6 cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze and his head uh, on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5000 shekels of bronze. And he had uh, bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him, and his students shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves." And let him come down. And if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. In the last few weeks, church, we've talked a lot about the relationship between the Israelites and the Philistines. And it's safe to say that it's been a little tense. In chapter 10, God instructed King Saul to take care of the garrison of the Philistines. And instead, it appears that the Philistines, instead of King Saul taking care of them, the Philistines appear to be increasingly bigger and stronger and more dangerous. They have a bigger army. According to chapter 13, they have a monopoly on weapons. And now they have a new secret weapon. They have Goliath, a literal giant, in their ranks. The author tells us that Goliath's height was six cubits and a span. And before you roll your eyes at the measurement units that they used, please remember we use feet in America. This guy was nine and a half feet tall, about you know, almost three meters high for those of us that use the correct system, the metric system. <laughs> now, this is a tall dude. You know, one of my first jobs back when I was in college was working at the American Airlines Centers uh, where the Dallas Mavericks just got kicked out of the playoffs. Um, it was a pretty cool job, I got to tell you. And one of the perks was that I had the opportunity to meet some NBA players like Dirk Nowitzki, uh, Tim Duncan, and even LeBron James at the beginning of his career, who, let me tell you, even then was not the nicest person. Now, as you can imagine, I saw a lot of tall people. A lot of tall people. And let me tell you, uh, even among all these NBA players that I saw from up close, there were some that were particularly intimidating uh, because of their height and physicality. But out of all of them, there are two that stand out that I remember very specifically and I don't think I'll ever forget. The first one of these guys is actually the most impressive, physically impressive person I've seen in my life. And his name is Kevin Garnett. He wasn't the tallest player I ever saw. But this guy was so imposing, he looked like a demigod. (laughs) Like the guy, I literally couldn't believe we were part of the same species. I'm not even kidding. He was insane. Now, the second person that I was shocked to see was Yao Ming. Some of you may remember Yao Ming, Chinese player. I uh, used to play for the Houston Rockets. The dude used to the dude was seven and a half feet tall. Now, I didn't get to meet him or to walk next to him, but I did see him from far away. And as I saw him from far away, he made all the other NBA players look like regular people. It was hard to comprehend. <laughs> he was apparently a super nice guy, very gentle guy. But even so. When you saw his mere size, he was intimidating. He was a little scary. There's something about standing next to someone that is so much bigger than you. Now, according to what the Bible tells us, Goliath made made Yao Ming look tiny. The author gives us a very detailed description of how imposing this guy was. He was big. He was strong. This guy, I want you to imagine this, that you're standing there and this huge guy comes to you with a huge spear, uh, with a state-of-the-art coat of mail. Remember the Philistines, they had a a monopoly in like armory and weaponry. This guy's wearing a a state-of-the-art coat of mail that was actually made out of scales. So the guy looked like a giant snake walking to the people of Israel and daring them to fight him. The picture we see here is of a giant bully seeking to intimidate the people of God. Goliath of Gath was an arrogant giant trying to subjugate the people of Israel through fear. He was what they called the champion. He was a champion challenging the Israelites to choose a man among themselves to fight for them. Now, this may be weird for us, but this was a practice in ancient history where to avoid uh, avoid bloodshed, uh, this practice... You know, instead of having a battle, they would, each nation, choose a champion. They would duke it out, and then whoever won would be the winning nation. Now, we know from the rest of the story that Goliath was lying. He said, if you defeat me, we will be your servants, and that wasn't the case. Now, Goliath, like I said, was huge and scary. The people of Israel found themselves in a terrifying situation because though he was only one man... Nobody wanted to be the one that would fight him. As Josiah mentioned earlier, the last couple of weeks have yet again reminded us of the fact that we live in a broken and dangerous world. If we look at the recent headlines raging from, from Congress trying to pass a law to allow full term abortion to the Buffalo shooting, to the, to the most recent shooting in Uvalde, where 18, 19 kids and two adults were senselessly murdered. These are fellow image bearers created in the image of God. They were killed and disposed of. Even in my own neighborhood, in peaceful Titus, Florida, in the last week, there's been two random shootings. It is clear, church, that death and sin are ever-present. These examples I just read are just one kind of danger, and it's the, most kind of, it's the most visible kind. But we live in a sin-ridden world that is broken. We live in a culture of death. Not only do we know this by looking around, by reading the headlines, but we know this by personal experience. We know this because Scripture tells us that death and sin reign in this broken world. Since the fall of man in Genesis 3, all of creation has been tainted um, and, and, and distorted by sin and by death, every man and woman has been born into sin, and sin has tainted every area of our lives. This is what we call the doctrine of total depravity. This doctrine doesn't teach, as some might say, that we are all as evil as we can be, because that's not true because you know ultimately even Hitler could have kicked another dog. But what this does mean is that sin is so pervasive, that he has affected and tainted every area of life and creation. As Josiah said, creation is groaning. We need a Savior. A world that is populated by sinners is a scary place. But before we move on, I do think it's important that, we clear, that, that, that I clarify this. that we live in a broken world, we also live in a beautiful world. One that was created by a loving father, a benevolent creator. God created this world and he said that it was good. So not everything is bad in this world. But still, even if there is beauty, even if there is good in this world, we are all well aware that we have an enemy. We live in a broken world. Just like the people of Israel, at times we find ourselves in situations that can be absolutely terrifying. Sin and death are out there. And if we're honest, it is scary sometimes. The Bible tells us we also have an enemy that prowls like a roaring lion seeking for some to devour. So the question is, what do we do when we find ourselves in that situation? What do we do when we find ourselves in a broken world, a scary place? What do we do when we find ourselves like the, like the Israelites, helpless in, phase, in the face of danger? Well... Our nature is to look for a deliverer, isn't it? Our nature is to look around and find someone or something that will save us. So we set our eyes on a champion, one that promises to deliver us. So the question for you this morning is who or what is your champion? Maybe not the one that you would say, but functionally, really, what is the thing that you look at for hope, for salvation? for safety, and for comfort in this broken world. Let me ask you this morning, can your champion actually deliver? In verse 8, we see Goliath say, Choose a man for yourselves. And guess what? The Israelites had already done just that. In chapter 8, verse 18, if you remember, Samuel warned the people of Israel and he told them, In that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. You see, the Israelites had already chosen a champion. His name was Saul. As Tim said last week, they had voted with their eyes. They chose a king, but not just any king. They chose an impressive king, one that was tall, one that was handsome, one that was impressive to the other nations. The question is, can this king deliver? Can this king actually save them? Is this the king they need? The answer is no. We saw in verses uh, 10 and 11 Uh, that a king of our own choosing is unable to deliver. They chose Saul, a champion for the Israelites. And you know what the Bible tells us. Verses 10 and 11 tells us that he, with the people of Israel, was dismayed and greatly afraid. Saul is once again utterly unable to deliver his people. But was so attractive for the Israelites in chapter 8, a tall, handsome guy completely falls short in their time of need. You see, just like the Israelites, we often place our hope for salvation on the wrong thing. How often do we look at our bank account, at our job, at our friendships, or maybe even at the White House for safety and comfort? Sometimes we think, if I only had more of that, I would be safe. If I only had the right guy sitting at the White House, we would be safe as a nation. In the same way the Israelites followed a king of their own choosing, if we set our our hope on anything other than Christ, whatever functional Savior we put our trust in, it will always fall short. In your time of need, you better hope your eyes are set on a deliverer of God's choosing. One that was was appointed by God and not by yourself. One that doesn't just seem attractive to the world, but one that can actually deliver in your time of need. In our time of need, our bank account cannot save us. Our career cannot save us. Our dream house cannot save us. Only a God-appointed king can deliver us and sustain us in this broken world. Now, I want us to keep reading. But I do got to tell you, I'm going to read a lengthy section. And a section that you are already familiar with. But let me ask you this morning, please don't let that dull your ears. Let's lean into the Word of God. This is the Word of the Lord. Would you follow with me as I read verses 12 to 40? I know it's long, but let's lean in. It says this, Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem and Judah. Named Jesse, who had eight sons, in the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to battle, and the names of his three sons uh, went to, and the names of his three sons who went to battle were Eliab the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third one Shama. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem for forty days. The Philistine, this being. Goliath, came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp um, to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand, see if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, uh, to the battle line shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle against um, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brother. As he talked with them, Behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come, to defy, he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by them, by him, What shall be done of the man, for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to, to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Uh, Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And he arose against me, and I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze uh, on his head and clothed him with a a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off, then took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His ling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Oh, that we would be bold like David to stand up against the enemies of God and know that God is with us. But here's what I want us to see from this lengthy passage we just read. That only the little boy from Bethlehem can deliver us from the enemy, from our actual enemies. Let's unpack this passage. In Scripture, primarily in the Old Testament, we see a lot of what we call foreshadowing. We know that everything in Scripture points us to Jesus. So as we read the Old Testament, we find what we call types. And this story is no exception. In this case, we see David. Uh, that David is a type of Jesus. He is a foreshadowing of the true and better king, Jesus Christ. Which is why I think it's a tragedy when the world takes this story as the story of a little guy who could do all he set his mind to. I believe that we can learn a lot from David and the way that he trusted the Lord in the face of a giant, in the face of someone who was defying not only the people of Israel, but God himself, even if we admire that and we can learn from him in this story, like we've heard before, we are not David. David here is a type of Christ. And his victory on behalf of Israel in this story is a foreshadowing of Christ's victory at the cross On our behalf. I want you to see this. that The little boy from Bethlehem is despised by his peers. He goes. uh, He hears the threat of Goliath. He goes and he starts asking questions. And he's like, "I'll, I'll fight him. And his brothers. The people around him. The army. Even the king saw himself. Despise him. In the same way, another boy from Bethlehem. Jesus was despised not only by his family, but by his neighbors, and ultimately the rulers and authorities. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was despised and mocked. He was rejected so that you and I would be accepted into the family of God. Now I want you to see in verses 38 to 40 that this little boy from Bethlehem laid down kingly clothes so that he could deliver us. In these two verses that I just mentioned, we see how Saul gave David his armor. He clothed him with his armor, with his helmet of bronze, with a coat of mail. David could have gone into battle with the clothes and the armor of a king, but he thought it best to go in battle with his simple clothes. In the same way, Jesus, our true and better king, left his kingly clothes at the right hand of the father. And instead of coming down as a conqueror king, he came as a humble servant, wearing not only humble clothes, but humbling himself by becoming incarnate, by becoming uh, human. You may wonder why earlier I asked Josiah to read from Philippians instead of the passage we just read. But I want us to read it again, because I want you to see how Jesus humbled himself, how he left his kingly clothes like David did to come and deliver his people. Philippians 2, verses 5-8 through says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count, uh, count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Do you see what Paul is telling the Philippians? What he's telling us? He's saying that Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the second person in the Godhead, the one who created all things, put on skin so he could come down and deliver us. Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, emptied himself. He was fully God. He emptied himself and became fully man like you And like me, the invisible Son of God became visible. The unlimited Son of God uh, limited himself. The eternal and immortal Son of God became mortal. The transcendent became imminent. And he did this so that you and I would be saved. Church, the exalted King of the universe became the little boy from Bethlehem. Who came to deliver his people? Let us keep reading. We're now going to read verses 41 through 51. And I want you to see here that only the God appointed king can actually deliver God's people. Verse 41 says this And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. Notice this: he he doesn't say this day I will deliver you, but he says this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in the bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. So we finally get to the most famous section of the story. And you know, we often focus so much on the sling and the smooth stones now we skip over what David tells Goliath. You know, Goliath is, 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 is trash talking before the fight. And David responds to him, and he, he, he talks to him, and I want you to see what we often miss. and it's the fact that David knew this. David didn't beat Goliath defeating all odds only because he believed in himself. He faced Goliath because he defied the God of Israel by threatening the people of Israel. You see, this story is not about how you uh, can do whatever you want as long as you believe in yourself. It's not about the little guy defeating the big guy. This is the story how only a God-appointed king can deliver his people. This story is not about David. David is here but a shadow. This story is about the history of the world, a broken world that only has hope by looking at a real Savior, Jesus Christ. In this passage, we read, um, uh, and in this passage we read, I'm so sorry, we see how the little boy of Bethlehem defeated the enemy of God's people, not with a sword or a spear. What we see in this passage is a foreshadowing of the fulfillment of what was promised to God's people in Genesis 3, 14 and 15. You may remember after the fall, when God is cursing the serpent, he says these words to it. He says, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts on the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. All the days of your life... I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Church, this is what theologians call the proto-evangelium, the first promise of a Savior. This is the first, the first sermon, the first declaration of the gospel, when God told the serpent That the Son of Man would bruise his head and that he shall bruise his heel. Throughout the Old Testament, we see other foreshadowings of this promise. We see, for example, when God provides Abraham with a ram so that Isaac may live. We see it when Moses delivers the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. We see it when Joshua brings the people into the promised land. We see a lot of foreshadowings in the Old Testament. And here we see it again. When the little boy from Bethlehem becomes the champion of Israel, when he defeats and beheads the giant snake, church, Christ came as a little boy to Bethlehem and he defeated sin on our behalf. He crushed the head of the snake so that you and I would have eternal life. Church, how about we stop putting our trust in, In lesser kings of our own choosing, and make the little boy from Bethlehem our king. By this, I don't mean only in word, but by the way that we live. Let me again ask you this morning: Who or what is your soul, your 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 soul, the king? Who or what is the king in your life that you have entrusted your life to, and that you live for? What is it that you look for, that you look to for comfort? for safety, for hope that will one day fall short. Let us this morning, as Hebrews 12, 2 says, fix our eyes on Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Herman Bavinck, Dutch theologian, he's one of my favorite theologians, he says this, Uh, In one of his books, he says, Man is an enigma whose solution can be found only in God. Let me say that again. Man is an enigma whose solution can be found only in God. Church, let us stop trying to find our solution in the world. Let us stop trying to find our solution in lesser kings. Let us instead set our eyes in Christ alone. Our victorious king, who has already defeated sin and death on our behalf, that we may live for him, this leads us to the last portion of the book of the chapter i 'm sorry that is often ignored, but I want us to take a moment to to, to look at it verses fifty two to fifty eight it says this it says in the men of Israel and Judah." rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from uh, Shariam as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, uh, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now, here's what I want us to notice from, from this passage. I want us to notice what happens after the defeat of Goliath. This is the, the part, like I said, that we often skip. We see that as a result of David's victory, the people of Israel and Judah did two things. First, they rode with a shout. And secondly, they pursued the Philistines. Church, you see, the victory of Christ leads us to worship. When the men of Israel saw that their enemy was defeated, they rose with a shout. You see, when we understand what Christ has accomplished at the cross in our behalf, we join Paul in saying, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, if you have placed your trust in Jesus, the true and better Savior, His victory leads you to praise and to worship. Megan tells me that me and my kids have a a pretty obvious tell when we like the food she makes us. She tells me that whenever I like the food I'm eating, I tend to dance a little. I had never noticed that, but now I see that it's true because I see it in my kids as well. And I guess it's true. I, I love me some good food. But if good food causes me to dance, how much more should the victory of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ should lead me to in praise and worship and adoration? Church, the victory of Christ and the cross should lead us to worship. If the image of Jesus and the cross, if the story of Jesus defeating sin on your behalf does not cause you to worship, I don't think you understand it. Church, Jesus is our champion who defeated the enemy we could not defeat. Jesus is our champion. He has defeated our enemy. He has made us new. He has adopted us into his family. He has caused us to be adopted into his family. He now calls us his bride, and that should lead us to worship. And in a minute, we will do just that. But before we do that, I want you to notice the second response of the people of Israel once they see their champion. David's victory allowed the the, the Israelites to pursue the Philistines. Because you see, Christ's victory on our behalf allows us to face lesser enemies. What do I mean by that? Remember how afraid the people of Israel had been for a few chapters now. They had been paralyzed by their fear of their enemy. But once their deliverer slays the giant, they begin to chase after the Philistines. You see, in the same way, Christ's defeat of our biggest enemy, sin and death, enables us to fight lesser enemies. As I mentioned before, we do live in a broken world. But the greatest enemy of all has already been defeated at the cross. Because of Christ, we do not fear death. Because of Christ, we do not fear sin. Because of Christ, no trial, no persecution, no tribulation will ultimately defeat us. It may hurt us, but it will not crush us. Because of the victory of Christ at the cross, we shall fear no evil. Because the real enemy has already defeated, lesser enemies may hurt us, but they will not ultimately kill us. There is no bad boss. There is no recession. There is no pandemic. There is no cancer. There is no divorce. There is no active shooter. There is no political party. There is no betrayal that can separate us from the love and the care of God today. Because Jesus has already defeated sin in Christ. Even if we die, we can say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Adam Ramsey puts it in his book beautifully. He says this, Under God's sovereign foot, every beating we experience in this life will be trodden into the fine wine of Christ-like life. Church, because the little boy of Bethlehem defeated sin and death, you and I can trust that there is no evil that will crush us. That there is nothing in this world that has the last word. So church, let me ask you again. Where is our hope this morning? Who is the deliverer that we're looking at today for hope and for salvation? Is it Christ? Now I know that many here this morning may be going through difficult times. You may very well be hurting this morning. You may be dealing with illness You may be dealing with stress. You may be dealing with the depression, with anxiety, with betrayal, with loss. And you know what? It hurts. And I don't want to minimize the pain. I know it hurts. But because Christ conquered our enemy at the cross, even these very real struggles today are but temporary. How about we worship our King in response to his victory at the cross. Would you stand with us this morning as we sing of Christ's victory?